That was Marilyn speaking at the end, and I vote that she subs in for me on all videos that we do. She's so good on camera. It's wonderful. We just turned it on, and she went, and everybody who was a part of that was terrific. And you'll be able to sign up for the next core discipleship, the second core discipleship, uh, starting in January. So keep your eyes open for when that registration opens if you want to be a part of that. I uh, was in Iowa this weekend. In the first service, somebody yelled out, Why? And was headed back last night, and I found out that we got some snow. There was no snow where I was, uh, but apparently we got some snow here. Who is excited that we got some snow? All right, we have a number of you who are excited that we got some snow. And if you don't like the snow, I think it is supposed to be in the mid-50s on Wednesday. So just wait a couple of days, and we'll see what happens. Yeah, there's a number of people who are like, I'm excited about that. Bring on the mid-50s. I love it. Uh, Joel talked about our sermon passage for today, and I just want to invite you to turn there with me. Luke chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 8 through 14. So Luke 2, we read that, verses 8 through 14, and we'll be pulling a couple of points out of there today. We are in a season in which there are constant reminders around us of adorable baby Jesus. Over the course of this week, I've been in two different stores that had manger scenes right there in the stores. Uh, Flipping through the channels one evening, there I saw a Christmas special where there was some country music star singing a Christmas carol to a live nativity with all live animals and actors playing Mary and Joseph and the shepherds. And there Mary was holding the most adorable little baby within there as this person was singing this carol to them. Uh, There are reminders all around us. Anyone received a Christmas card yet that had a manger scene on it? Right? There's probably a few in the room who have received that kind of Christmas card from somebody. Reminders of cute and adorable baby Jesus are all around us this time of season. And I think it's really healthy and positive that we're reminded of baby Jesus. Because it's a reminder to us as his followers that God came and became a human being, born as a a baby, lived a human life so that we could have relationship with him. And every time we see baby Jesus, it's a reminder that God came and became a person so that we can have a relationship with him. But, But of course, for us to fully recognize and know Jesus, we have to push beyond just the cute baby imagery. Because Jesus is far more than that. And as we look at who Jesus is, we recognize that he's awesome. And he's overwhelming. And he is great beyond all all measure. Easy for me to say. right? Great beyond all measure. That he's majestic. And thus the title of our series is Majesty. And over the course of the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at who Jesus is and seeing his majesty. We're going to look at Jesus as Savior, King, God, perfect image of the Father, as victor over sin and death. And as we do so, we're going to see the majesty of Jesus. The Apostle John saw the majesty of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. 
We're told that John was called up into heaven where he came face to face with Jesus. And when he is face to face with Jesus, he begins to describe Jesus using all of these metaphors or word pictures in order to describe Jesus' nature and character. And so he says, Jesus has hair whiter than wool in order to describe the infinite wisdom of Jesus. He has eyes like flaming fire that describe the fact that Jesus can see through anything, any facade, and see things for what they truly are. He has feet like burnished bronze, he says, that can stomp out any enemy that comes against him. A number of these different word pictures that John gives us in order to describe the character and nature of Jesus to us. And when he is done with those word pictures, John tells us what his reaction was when he saw the glorified and majestic Jesus in the heavenly setting. Revelation chapter 1, verse 17, he says, When I saw him, when I saw Jesus, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Who is it that sees the risen Jesus here? It's the Apostle John. The Apostle John who spent three years living with Jesus. The Apostle John who some describe as Jesus' closest human relationship while he was on the earth. Comes face to face with his Savior, with his King, with his friend. And what is his reaction when he sees the majesty of the glorified Jesus? He falls on his face as though dead and he cannot get up. You want to know what our first reaction is going to be when we see Jesus face to face? This seems to give us a pretty good indication. When his best friend on the earth is so thoroughly overwhelmed by the glory and majesty of Jesus, all he can do is fall on his face and he can't get up until Jesus gets him up. Because Jesus is majestic. And so over the course of the next few weeks, as we look at these different ways in which Jesus shows off his majesty. We're going to have an opportunity to worship him in who he is. And today we start by looking at the fact that Jesus is the Savior. And you guys, I needed a Savior. Anyone else? Right? I needed a Savior. When I was younger, I used to regularly use my words to tear other people down and hurt other people. I, I, I don't mean once or twice. I mean, I used to regularly use my words in order to tear other people down and hurt other people. I was insecure about my place on life's ladder, and somehow I felt like it might make me feel better if I tore other people down so at least they would know they were beneath me, or maybe so it was I would know that they were beneath me. I don't know. But I'd regularly use my words to harm other people. I don't mean the kind of juvenile joking that sometimes goes on between people like Joel and myself, <laughs> where, where we're just, uh, you know, acting like 12-year-olds, expressing our affection for one another through jokes. No, no, I mean finding somebody else's place of insecurity and weakness and mocking them in it so that they'll recognize, no, I'm above you. And this was one of dozens of sins that I recognize from my life years ago. 
As I think back through my life, I recognize times that I stole things, that I lied, that I cheated. I recognize lust in my life. I recognize coveting in my life. I recognize enormous amounts of pride. And of course, it all fell under this great big umbrella of selfishness. I desperately needed a savior. And the Bible says I wasn't alone. That the primary person, the primary problem that every human being has is that we were made to be in the image of God. We were made to reflect his character perfectly. He is love and we were meant to love perfectly throughout our lives and yet as human beings, we've chosen selfishness instead of love. He is truth, and I was meant to be perfectly honest. And yet, as a human being, I chose dishonesty on multiple occasions. He made us to be people who are perfect in our rejoicing and peace, and yet so often we choose anxiety and worry and distrust for our God. The primary problem that each and every one of us has is that we're disobedient and sinful before our God. And what does the Bible teach us the result of that is? What are the consequences for that? Death. Death in the spiritual sense in which we are cut off from God and all that is good that flows out of him because of our sin. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 says that we were all dead in our trespasses and sins. Romans chapter 6 verse 23 says the wages of sin is death. You guys get this, right? And so we were dead, cut off from God. When I was a kid, an image that helped me was to understand God as a fire on a very cold and dark night. Not only am I meant to be near that fire, but there are good blessings that come from that fire into my life. Blessings like warmth, heat, blessings like light that I experience. And so I'm meant to be near that fire and I'm meant to experience the blessings that naturally come from that fire. But because of my sin, what has happened in that picture is this giant and impenetrable wall has been erected between the fire and me. And so not only am I separated from the fire, God, but I'm separated from all of those natural blessings that flow only out of God. All of the warmth and light that I'm meant to have, I don't have. Instead, I'm stuck in the dark because of that wall my sin has created. What do I need? Yeah, that's right. I need a savior. I need one who can tear down that wall. One who can make me righteous so that I can be in the presence of holy God and experience him and all the good that flows only from him. That is what I needed above all things. That's what foul mouth jerk me needed. Above everything in life, I needed to be saved from my sins. And I've got good news for you. Because Jesus came in order to save. What did verse 11 of our passage say? For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. That's right, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Jesus is our Savior. And here at Friendship... If you've been here very long, you know we talk a lot about the fact that Jesus saves us in three tenses. Right? Jesus has saved you if you are his follower. He is saving you and he will save you. Right? Jesus saves us in three tenses. In the past, Jesus saved us. It is done. It is completed. He has saved us from the penalty of our sin. What does Romans chapter 8 verse 1 say? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
right? He has saved us. It is done. There will never again be condemnation for you if you are a follower of Jesus. Before Jesus, I was guilty in God's courtroom. Right? Before Jesus, I was guilty in God's courtroom. I was guilty of using my words to intentionally tear other people down. That's hate. I told you already, I was guilty of dishonesty. I remember times of stealing. I was guilty of, of lust. I was guilty of coveting, and on and on. Satan, the accuser, didn't have to make things up about He's willing to, but he didn't have to make things up about me in God's courtroom. I gave plenty of material for a guilty verdict before a holy judge. And yet today, as I stand here, I know that there is no more condemnation for me. That I have been justified, that is, declared righteous in the courtroom of God because of what Jesus has done on my behalf. And only because of what Jesus has done on my behalf. He took the credit, if you, if you will, the credit for my sins and the punishment that those sins deserved so that I could be credited with his righteousness. And so, we have been saved, past tense, from the penalty of our sin. But Jesus loves us too much to simply save us from the penalty of our sin. And so he is, present tense, saving us from the practice of sin. Every person who receives God's salvation and is declared righteous in God's courtroom, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within them and he begins to transform their life. And change them so that they reflect the character of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, We all with unveiled faces are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord who is the Spirit. God has taken his tools of the Holy Spirit, his word and the church, and he has gone to work on the mess of my life. Before Jesus, so often my words were filled with hurt and pain for other people. But God's Spirit has gone to work and he has been transforming so that more and more my words are about encouragement, grace. More and more my words are about praise. Do I still have a ways to go in this area? You can't even measure how far I still have to go in this area. Right? It's unbelievable. I've got a couple of witnesses who would be willing to bear testimony as to how far I have to go in this area. But like so many of you who have a particular area where you look at it and you go, I have so far to go, you can also look back and say, and look at what Jesus has done. Look at where he has brought me thus far. Because our God is currently saving us from the practice of sin. More and more, the flesh is killed. More and more, the spirit dominates and lives in our life. I'm going to share a video with you of a couple from our church. And it's a, it's a hard and challenging video, but I share it with you because I want you to recognize the depths of forgiveness of our God and the transformation that he brings into their life. They're people who grew up in the church. They grew up with some understanding, but never had placed their trust in Jesus. And when they placed their trust in Jesus, 
everything changed and their life has been totally transformed since the incidents that they talk about and I want you to hear their story. It's not a quick fix. I hear it all the time, women 20, 30, 40, 50 years later are struggling so deeply with that decision they made all those years ago. And it just continues to eat away at them, not believing the lie that abortion is a quick fix and everything will be okay would be my advice. So I'm Carrie, and this is my husband, Chris Beaner, and we've been going to Friendship Church for um, nearly a year now. Uh, we've been married for almost 33 years now. We have three kids. We have eight grandkids. We met each other in March of 1987. We met at a supermarket on Nicollet and Lake Street. I was a bag boy, and she was friends with one of the cashiers. Um, and then. We met about a one month before I had to ship off to basic training for the Navy. We were young when we were dating, and when Chris was stationed out in California, I went out there to be with him. It wasn't long before we found out that I was pregnant, and we were really grappling with what do we do. Um, this was really, really tough. It was very unexpected, and um, we weren't prepared for this at all. Uh, while we both came from Christian homes, we didn't have a strong faith. For me, I had friends who had had abortions and um, that just seemed like the norm. Uh, I think the fear uh, really set in um, and the lies um, really set in and we were just afraid that we couldn't do it. We were afraid we couldn't do it. We were also afraid of what people would think. And so um, we regrettably uh, made a decision to have an abortion. I don't remember a lot about the actual day it happened. I do remember when it was over asking the abortionist if it was a boy or a girl and, and he told me it was a boy. It was a second trimester abortion and that's kind of when it hit me really what we had done. We had just killed our son. This is something that never goes away. It's uh, supposedly a quick fix, get on with your life, but that's not how it works. We think about him all the time. We wonder what he would have been like. What would he be doing for a job? Would he be married? Would he have kids? What kind of impact would he have on his siblings or even us? Um, how much different would life be had he been around? And, you know, he would be 33 years old today. And all of that is, is unknown. Uh, because we did what we did and made the decision that we made. So this is something that we all know in our hearts what we're doing when we make that decision. What's missing in the abortion discussion in church is just discussing it, um, not calling it what it is, which is sin. And then I think the other huge miss is um, that we're not addressing the fact that um, there is forgiveness for this sin, just like there's forgiveness for all sin. And it leaves uh, a whole group of people really not knowing that the gospel is for them. You believe that it's the unforgivable sin, 
If you went to church thinking that forgiveness isn't for you, would church be a safe place anymore? We're not reaching a huge group of people um, that have experienced this in their lives uh, for the gospel. The message uh, I would give to somebody who's thinking about abortion, take a breath, look at what could life be like just a month from now, six months from now, 12 months from now. How different would your circumstances be? And would that change? If in six months things were so drastically different, would you still want to be making that abortion decision today? Once we do this, um, it can't be taken back. There is forgiveness from our Heavenly Father. We can't forgive ourselves. I know we want to think that we can, but we can't. We can only seek forgiveness from Him, and He readily uh, gives it. Confessing the sin, seeking God's forgiveness in your life, and just giving your life over to Him, and He will heal uh, this brokenness. A couple of things that I want you to take away from that video. First is a recognition that our God can forgive any sin. Uh, whether your past includes using your words to tear other people down, it, it includes lust and pornography, it, it includes gossiping about other people, it includes being judgmental and self-righteous, it, it includes, in Chris's words, killing your son. There is no sin that cannot be forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. And there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Are there consequences? You can hear the consequences, right, in every sentence. But there is no condemnation in the courtroom of God when that sin has been dealt with. The second thing I want you to hear is about the transformation that God's Spirit brings when we place our faith in him, that we move to a place where they now serve in and lead a ministry for people who are in the exact same situation that they were in, presenting Jesus to those who are considering uh, this choice because God changes us, he transforms us and moves within us. He has saved us, he is saving us. And the third thing that we saw is he will ultimately and finally save us from the presence of all sin. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 says, when we see him face to face, what's going to happen? We will be like him. Our character will be like his. We'll dwell in a place free from sin. We'll dwell with a community of people totally free from sin. Revelation chapter 21 says, there'll be no more sickness There'll be no more pain. There'll be no more death. There'll be no more suffering. Billy Graham says, even when we allow our imaginations to run wild on the joys of heaven, we find that our minds are incapable of conceiving what it will be like. And the announcement that was made to the angels is not only that Jesus has saved us will, and, and is saving us, it's that he will ultimately save us from the presence of all sin in our lives. The angels come and announce to the shepherds, Jesus is the Savior, and he saves us in three tenses. And I have even better news to add to that good news. 
right? Because I want you to understand that that good news that was announced to the shepherds is that salvation is for all of the people, right? What did verse 10 say? The angel said to them, fear not for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Who's the good news for? It's just for the rich who can buy it, right? It's just for the smart who can reason to it. It's just for the the winsome who can charm their way to salvation. No, that's not right, is it? The blessing of Jesus' salvation is for all of the people. No matter where you stand on society's ladder, it does not matter. This salvation can be for you. The shepherds are such a great example of that because the shepherds were considered low in this society. Were shepherds rich or poor? Most of them were poor. Not only that, most people didn't trust shepherds because there are writings from this time period that indicate shepherds, some of them, made a regular practice of using people's land and their resources without asking them. So much so that in the Talmud, the rabbis write that a shepherd's word is not to be trusted in a court of law. These were people who were on the low end of the spectrum. Because of their job, most of the time they spent ceremonially unclean. And how important was that to a Jew? Pretty important. And God intentionally comes to this group of people in order to announce that his salvation is for all of the people. And this is a reminder to each and every one of us, no matter what we have done, no matter how others look at us, the salvation of Jesus Christ, it's for you. It's for you. It's for all of the people. And while Jesus as Savior is for all of the people, this passage also shows us that only some people will be saved. What did the angels sing in verse 14? Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. With whom he is pleased. The Bible says that because of our sins, we were enemies with God, but that peace with God is possible through Jesus. Who is it that can experience that peace with God and right relationship with God? It's those with whom God is pleased. Those are the ones who can enter into relationship with God. Those are the ones who can be at peace with God. Those with whom God is pleased. And doesn't that bring us to the natural question? Who are those with whom God is pleased? I kind of want to know. Look at Hebrews 11.6. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. What is it that is required to please God? It's our faith. It's faith in him that pleases God. Without that faith, we can't possibly please God. In Acts chapter 16, the Philippian jailer asked Paul and Silas, what must I do to experience this salvation of Jesus Christ? And what is Paul's response? Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. We're just coming off a sermon series out of Romans. What was our theme verse in that series? For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who... Believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. 
What is it that brings us to a place where we are pleasing to God? It is faith in him that brings about this salvation. Jesus invites each and every person to come to him. This is a message that is good news for all of the people. And he says, come to me, you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest for your souls. If you'll come to me and place your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ. If you have questions about what that means, we'd love to talk to you more about what it means to place your, your faith in Jesus. What it looks like to have salvation in three tenses when Jesus comes into our life. And you can write on that communication card that you got today, hey, I want to know more about faith. I want to know more about what it means to know Jesus. And we'd love to talk to you more about that. For those of you who are in here who have placed your trust and faith in Jesus Christ, I want to encourage you to live the life of the shepherd. What did the shepherds do after they received this announcement? They went and sought Jesus. And then what did they do? They worshipped Jesus. And then what did they do when they left? They told everybody they could find about Jesus. Do you have faith and trust in Jesus Christ today? If you do, what is the call? Live the life of the shepherd. Right? Seek Jesus with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Worship Jesus with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And tell everybody you can find about Jesus. That's the call in our life. Let's follow the way of the shepherd. As we enter into a time of taking the Lord's Supper, we do so recognizing the great sacrifice that Jesus has made on our behalf so that we can be saved. And today, as you take these elements, I want you to be thinking about the fact that Jesus has saved you. He is saving you, and he will save you. All that Jesus has, is, and will do in your life. You can go and take the elements from the tables when you're ready. The band will play a little bit, and then we'll sing a song worshiping Jesus together. And as we do, you can grab those elements and bring them back to your seat, and I'll lead us in the taking of those elements in just a few minutes.